Hello, listeners, and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. Today, we're proving an important point, and that is that if you send us an audio clip or send us an email or just talk to us, you too could be a guest and the world will find out how amazingly interesting you are. So today, we are very lucky to be joined by someone who started in Australia, is now in Ireland, is a physiotherapist, and has a very cool accent. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make, and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well. Not in the studio. No pink coffee. Sitting at home with my laptop. It's almost as it's uh, reminiscent of COVID times, but uh, not for not without reason. We're joined with a very special guest uh, from across many many ponds. Thank you for joining us, Scott Murphy. Thanks, Tim. How are you going, David? Very well. And as I said, listeners, hear that lovely accent. Part Australia, yep. part Ireland, and and all smiley and happy. Always happy, David. Always happy. That is a very good thing to be. So, as someone who's managed to make it from Australia to Ireland, become a physiotherapist, work in the high-performance sport area, how and where did it all begin? I suppose the the sport thing started back when I left school and um, didn't get the marks to do physio because I'm not that smart. So, I went off and did a sports science degree and then finished that and went off and worked for a couple of years, worked as a PE teacher and kept flipping a coin between basketball and soccer. So I got bored with that. So went and worked at a nursing home for a year to see what the life of a physio was all about. And then went and did an undergrad degree in Sydney University. That was my four years. Then got out of there and did my allocation year in St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, working in the hospital there. Did some really, really cool stuff. And then after 18 months, bravely got on a plane to go and work in Europe for 18 months. And how many years ago, ago, I was going to say, and how many years ago is that? Wow, 16 years ago. So you you qualified as a teacher along the way that you were a PE teacher too? No, I was a sports science graduate working in a private school and they went, I was actually working in their gym and they went, you can teach PE as well (laughs) because you know the difference between a rugby ball and a basketball. (laughs) (laughs) That's good because I don't. See, that's why he gets the important task. (laughs) It's the one, the the huge qualification for education is knowing the difference between two different types of balls. Well, for particular kinds of education. See, yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna make no jokes about PE teachers, because you know, in my case, one of the people that taught me to use a cane was mm-hmm. a PE teacher before he became a mobility and orientation instructor. Wow. So from that experience, you know, I actually defend PE teachers, going, hang on. You know, human movement's really important. Teaching kids to be physically competent and confident is massively important. And if PE is the way into all those things, that's a huge win. So how much impact did it have having that year of being a PE teacher to being more committed to becoming a physio? I suppose it did inform a lot of what I was doing and what I do now within physio. And it's, I suppose, something I'm passionate about now. And, and it is that confidence and competence physically that we don't have in kids now. Um, yeah. You look at, at any playground, you can basically spike a kid into the ground and you're not going to hurt them because everything's rubberized and yeah. things like that. And we, 
we don't have the aspect that that whole learning aspect of knocking the rough edges off a skill just it's it's not there yeah like yeah you know, for example scott the primary school i went to for the blind at the time i went the modern rubberized playground had not been invented yet so they built us as a bunch of blind kids a massive big timber fort where the highest point would have been about six meters above the ground it had a <laughs> green grass slope going down one side and pavers on the other a safety green grass slope i'm sure that was well that was the highest side and that's when we all used to jump <laughs> off and crash and roll so we kind of all practiced how to be stunt people on that if you had the guts to leap. And it was Brilliant. the opposite side to where the teachers walked. So if you're really <laughs> lucky, you never got found out. It's adapt or die. Yeah, I think my, my all-time record in a lunch was to jump off at eight times in one lunch. Wow. I, I, you look at that compared to now where I've got primary schools now where I'm living, the, the kids aren't allowed to run for safety reasons. Whoa, that Terrible. is not good. No. Like I can remember as a kid, like every year there'd be someone who'd break an arm, break a leg, or but they were yeah. they were in the minority. Yeah, and it was it always also Jimmy healed. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Like that's the thing: bones heal and chicks dig scars. Like it's, <laughs> it is stuff does happen, but you can't legislate for the minority. You've you've got to allow people to make mistakes. Yeah, because that's all they are. We're not talking about people going around snapping each other's arms, as that is the sport. The snapped arm was the consequence of a sport that 99.9% .9 of the time, time turned out well for everyone. Yep. And we all had a great time. Well, yeah. And a, we learned stuff. Yep. A worldwide phenomena too. Um, it's not, not just happening in Ireland. It's certainly not just happening in Australia either. Yet, uh, you know, I can't help but just think of as an example, America. Are you more likely to break a bone running in a US school or be shot by some more likely to be shot i reckon yeah that's my vote <laughs> which is a terrible no, thing to no, have to say no fault of their own yeah yeah sorry just as a off a, a, a tangential observation <laughs> yeah. hey, it's an entertaining one now the other thing you said there of course that's interesting is having to choose between soccer and basketball that's a pretty wild combination you know, one pretty much all with your hands, the other all with your feet. Was this because you were just Mr. Ambidextrous and pretty much if it was a sport with a ball, you'd have a go? It was probably more along the lines as I was teaching in a rugby school and I wanted the other kids to have something to do other than rugby. I'd say okay. more than anything else. So you were flexible in order to try and get that competence and confidence cycle going, you know, to just get the kids doing something they might become passionate about. Yeah, and something different than what I suppose the norm was for the school. Like it was a, a big private school in the North Shore of Sydney and they were a rugby school. And yep. the kids that played rugby got to run around heaps and the kids that didn't play rugby well, kind of got to watch the kids that played rugby played run rugby. around. Yeah. yeah, see, at Adelaide University about, I think it was probably three of the people that taught me as an undergrad in politics had all been rugby players at university and every one of them was basically crippled. <laughs> It is a good way of breaking people. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not sure if that says something about university rugby. I, the people playing it were very passionate, but wouldn't put the time into training to a level where it reduced their risk of injury a bit, or if rugby just breaks people. I think it's the former rather than the latter. I think it's, okay. you can, you can get through things quite well, but it's, it is that, I suppose, university thing where you, you play hard and you party hard. So that the, yeah. the level of physical preparedness probably isn't there for what it would be in say a professional setup. Yeah, they consumed an awful lot of carbs in liquid form, but probably didn't do much else. Yeah. 
So it was anesthetic before the it was anesthetic before the sport, which is always very <laughs> important. Not good for motor learning though, or motor control. Yeah, well, it's it's university sport. <laughs> so from there, you said you know you worked for a year what in aged care to start watching what physios did. That's a pretty out of the ordinary context to sort of go and learn about physio, isn't it? I suppose this is one of the true misconceptions of physio. Everyone sees a physio as the guy with the sponge on the side of a football pitch. And the vast majority of physios work in hospitals and aged care facilities and, and do stuff that may not necessarily fit that guy in a tracksuit on the side of the field. I knew about that and I'd been involved with rugby league and things like that at home. So I wanted to see the broader aspect of the, the profession and, and part of actually getting into university was to show that I did understand what the job actually entailed. I didn't so want go, to and do, go and do yeah. the difficult version and show you already understand what doing the unglamorous bit looks like. Yeah, I wouldn't say it was a difficult bit in that, like, geez, I got to work with people that had survived the Holocaust and things like that. Like, yeah. it wasn't difficult. It was seeing a very different aspect of the job that I probably hadn't been aware of, yep. but was still a monstrously rewarding part of the job. Like, you get someone who can't get up out of a chair, your life is really bad. Yeah. And if you do very, very simple amount of work with that person, they can get up out of a chair, yeah. their life's transformed. Yeah, my sister-in-law is a physio and she works uh, in one of the hospitals here in North Adelaide a couple of days a week, you know, doing rehab with people. And I kind of figured that, you know, that kind of rehab is probably immediately after things have happened where the kind of rehab you were doing or the, you know, the, you were trying to make sure that people kept what ability to move they still had in their seventies, yep. eighties or nineties, when if they lose it, they're never, ever going to get it back. I would imagine. hundred percent. And you'll, you'll see that. Like I was, working particularly in a nursing home you've got a certain population of people that like they're not handling living at home anymore and there's such a fine line being independent and being able to to get around and look after yourself and then you cross that line and you're completely dependent yeah and it's such a fine line and it's trainable you can you can keep someone independent and in a home and then you look at it, the finances of things just the physical independence of a person to be able to, to look after themselves is massive yep see it was interesting last week we recorded with you know the PE teacher that taught me mobility with the cane when I was 10. And Rowley was making the point that as he was training to be a mobility instructor in Melbourne, that across the road from where Guide Dogs in Melbourne was, was a hospital where people uh, were recovering quite often from strokes. And they had the realization, hey, if we get the mobility and orientation people in to help people as they're recovering from a stroke, who've often lost a bit of sight, their balance is not so good anymore, their mobility is not so good, we can use this skill set. So this would have been late 70s, early 80s. Yep. So again, it was that point of realizing one thing is not what's happened to people. One thing's happened and then there's been a cascade of all the other things it affects and all the other things where if you don't get back their capacity relatively quickly, they'll forget they had it and it will get harder and harder to bring the capacity back. Yeah, that's it. And it, and the thing, I suppose, you look at stroke and things like that, everything is trainable. Our brain yeah. is hugely plastic. So yeah. And and that carries on out through life. Carries on through life. So you're looking at like the, the guys in the nursing home. We'd be trying to teach them stuff. Now it's harder, but it's doable. And it's the more you challenge someone's brain, the better their brain gets up and gets going. So in the period where you were doing your study as a physio, was occupational therapy an option yet, or did that come a little bit later? No, it was there. Um, OTs. I studied at at Sydney Uni out of the Cumberland campus, and we had OTs physios and uh, sports science guys all on the same campus. So 
my current role at work is I work in a university here with physiotherapy and we tend to have a blend, a, a bit more blended learning in that we have OTs in the same classes um, okay. as, as physio. So we do a lot of multidisciplinary stuff and interprofessional education. Back then it was like the OTs did their thing and we did yeah. our thing. Because you know, I always remember as people started training in occupational therapy, I think here in Adelaide, the courses at UniSA, and I know a few people that did it in the mid to late 90s, right at the beginning of it being available. And at that point, they were seeing the OT tribe and the physio tribe as tribes that shall not meet. And I just remember sitting on the periphery as someone who'd you know, been a sports injury masseuse and worked with chiropractors and worked with athletes going, why the heck aren't they in class together half of every week, realizing all the things they could achieve working together. Yeah, it's it's hilarious working in a hospital where you do work directly with OTs every day. And then it was thinking back to what we were doing at college where it was like the OTs were in one corner, we were in the other corner. Yeah. What we're starting to do now with education is that we do, we blend the two courses together. They have a different way of looking at things than we do, but it's the same. And you, once you hit hit the hospital setting, you do work very, very closely together with one another. Yeah, we're sort of seeing more of the beginning of integrative medicine. The whole idea of everyone go, well, what could you do to help this person? Well, if we work out how to put all the bits together in the right order, they're going to gain even more functionality back. 100%. And, and reducing that whole demarcation of who's the boss in this person's care and it's who can offer the best option for this patient at this particular time, I think, is, is where we're starting to go with things. Being there in Europe... You know, here you had the experience of you know, working in aged care and then doing your training and having a bit of experience before you left for Ireland. What's the biggest difference, do you think, being a physio here versus being a physio in Ireland? Or is it more the whole world has changed as we've moved more towards integrative medicine? I think, speaking just as a physio, I think it's it's very, very similar, both sides of the uh, the pond. Um, I've... Like I've I've worked back in Australia in the last sixteen years. I spent a year back doing a master, so I, I've seen um, what things are like there relatively recently. And it is it's very very similar between the okay. two. So the big brave decision to get on the plane to Ireland, a consequence of you know family heritage and wanted to go see, just you know a bit bored because you put yourself through so many challenges and you needed a new one. I think it was. <laughs> Having a surname Murphy, it was kind of inevitable I was going to end up back here. But uh, I, the simple thing was I didn't want to go to London and be an Aussie living in London because I yep. might as well have just stayed at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, kangaroo court. How many more people yeah. do we need in Earl's court? Yep. Exactly. So I was rowing at the time and I followed the Tour de France. I'd been to the Olympics in Athens and then I needed to get fit again to go back and do some racing in America. So through a friend of a friend, I ended up in Limerick and I was rowing and training here. Went over and raced in the States, ran out of money, needed a job, got a job in a hospital here in Limerick and I've been here since. Isn't that amazing how you can have a plan to keep moving forward, but the only plan is to keep moving forward. The details get worked out as opportunities arise. Oh yeah, it was it was very much, I'm going to go and follow the Tour of France and lived in a car with a mate of mine for three weeks and then we went from there <laughs> to the Olympics and then um, oh yeah, France in the middle of summer and with another bloke in a Renault Scenic is interesting. Um, <laughs> it was good fun though. Heaps of fun. One of the guide dog instructors here in Adelaide who taught me to use a cane probably 10 years ago, he was a mad cyclist and he did one of those tours where you ride you know, on the Tour de France, the course like the day after the athletes have been on it. Yep. 
So in a sense, you get to do big chunks of it the day after at a pace that doesn't kill you with you know, <laughs> more food available, breaks. And a lot slower. Oh, yeah. I just remember laughing hysterically going, that sounds awesome that you're actually you know going to do it, not just to go and watch it. Like I like the idea so much more of rather than watching it, of going, well, I want to ride on that road. I want to know what it's like to come around that corner and look over the edge of the cliff. I want to know what it's like to go down that hill and think you're going to die. I thought that was that was a much better approach. <laughs> it is a it's a lot more hardcore way of doing it, but you you're definitely getting the, the real experience, that's for sure. So have you got excited about the whole I think of you know riding push bikes too? Or you much prefer to watch cycling than do cycling? Uh I suppose when I was rowing, I would do a fair bit of cycling uh as cross training, but yep. now I work with a cycling team, so I would never call myself a cyclist because I do actually get to work with the guys who ride the Tour de France. So it'd be a bit embarrassing saying I rode a bike. Yeah, yeah, it's strictly recreational. A way to 100%. go, and pick, a way to go and pick up the pizza. Exactly. My poison physically now is getting out and running, just because it's easier. Pair of shoes, pair of shorts, out the door, and away we go. Yeah, it keeps life as simple as possible. Yeah. Okay, but if we jump back to the fact that you know the average kid now, you know, could throw themselves in any direction in a playground, and will bounce off of something rubber and that you're aware of schools near you where people aren't allowed to run. Uh, what happens now when someone decides they want to learn to run or they decide to get said shoes and shorts and start running? How many people do you see as a physio who are there? Because quite simply, they've got no technique because they just haven't done those hours of running that kids used to do. I suppose, and this is something massive that I'd see. If you think about it, no one is taught to run. So yeah. we're kind of taught to walk and then the kids who work it out do it a bit quicker than everyone else. And then athletics grabs them and says, this is how you actually run. Mm. And you watch athletics kids, they run totally different to the rest of us. Mm. And you look at modern athletic shoes, you can run on your heels if you want and you're not going to pay for it. Mm. Um, something I'll do with patients regularly, my physio practice is attached to a big warehouse gym. So I've got loads of space. I'll get people to take their shoes off and get them to run across the concrete. And it sounds like a duck slapping its way across the floor. <laughs> That's terrible. But, but you get a lot of information once. very quick. Oh, yeah. Huge amounts of A for information. And they'll they'll only do it once. And then all of a sudden they'll run slightly more forward on their feet and they'll shorten their stride up a little bit and they might quicken their, their cadence up a bit and they run a whole bunch better. Just because they've been in contact with the ground for the first time probably ever. Interesting. Yeah. Like I remember getting obsessed a few years ago with trying to find a pair of you know barefoot shoes. Because, you know, for me, the more I can feel through the ground, the more I can use that as navigational information. Like if I can feel the angle of the, the paving stones or things like that, it's easier to keep a straight line as I'm navigating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was easy to get sort of supposed barefoot runners, but to try and get like a pair of barefoot, slightly neater shoes took me about six months of, you know, well, where am I going to find these things? And I'm going to have to order them without ever trying them on because you know, I don't want to walk around in lime green shoes as a university <laughs> lecturer. It's not a look. <laughs> you could be that guy yeah, it could it, it's it's amazing like to look at it in an irish context like irish kids get the lowest level of physical education anywhere in europe they get 38 hours a year of pe in primary school wow which is terrifying yeah it's really scary and part of it is due to the climate of the place like it's cold and wet here yeah. a lot but you can counteract that i've i've a teacher who works in the school for the deaf and I was talking to about this program they run in Scotland called the Daily Mile. And it's, you go out and you cover a mile. You mark out a space somewhere and 
she's jumped on board with it and thinks it's the greatest thing on earth. But you get a class sometime during the day, they've got to cover a mile. They can run it if they want. They can walk it if they want. And what they found, in, it was brought in Scotland where it's colder and wetter than it is here. Yeah. And they found that I think four out of five days, they ended up getting it done. And they found the kids that wanted to run it, ran it. Yeah. And the really super competitive kids asked the teacher to time it, but there was no rules on it. It was just, you just got to cover a mile. And yeah. then there was that group in the middle that kind of jogged it a bit. And then there was a group of kids at the back that sort of chatted and giggled their way through it. But what they mm. found over time was that there were slightly more kids that were jogging it and trotting it and getting mm. forward and the giggling and laughing at the back. Some days it was there, but other days the kids would be like, let's, let's get on with it and let's push things on a bit. And they found that kids didn't melt when it rained. Yeah. And if you put if you put a jacket on, you didn't get so wet and kids were better in class they weren't jumping out of their skin yeah most of the day yeah. so it's a simple thing but the uh jacinda will work with at the moment she's she's jumped on board with it and there's kids that are now racking up they want to run to poland and they want to do this so they're trying to get their <laughs> mileage up and yeah. all sorts of mad things like that so it's because kids are infinitely like they they love that sort of stuff anything's a bit challenging or a little yeah. bit they can use their imagination on they'll jump on board with it so and it's simple that's that's the cool thing about it yeah, and it's still at the age where the likelihood is they'll bumble into running better just because of sheer level of neuroplasticity. Yep, they just give it a go and, oh, hey, yeah. presto. And they can see that Michelle runs faster than I do, so I'll see what she's doing and I'll try and, I'll try and copy that. Yep. Whereas, again, when I think back, like we had an equivalent in the blind primary school of, you know, the aim was to get 100 kilometres done over the school year. You know, do it in kilometer chunks. And the only thing I didn't like about that is not being able to see other people to improve how I run. Yeah. So what I remember yeah. is I'd try different things and go, no, nah, it still doesn't feel like I'm really, you know, you don't know how to articulate as a kid, but you know, it's not really feeling fluid. Yep. Yeah, I'm not at the front. Yeah. Well, again, with a bunch of blind kids, no one knows where front is yeah. unless, they, <laughs> unless something goes horribly wrong. So that's a whole other issue. <laughs> It was probably a pretty weird thing to get us to do, but it's amazing how many of us actually thought it was entertaining. Oh, it's it's, it's amazing the the reticence of the school with the the school for the deaf. So these kids can see where they're going. It's just that this whole but they're deaf kids. It's like yeah. And the teacher I work with, she's like, yes, they can't hear things, but they can still do everything else. Yeah, it's and not like you're asking you're not asking them to run along the edge of a road. No, it's on no. grounds. It's safe. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, she's a, a forest school teacher and she'll take the kids out into, into the forest and they love it. And they race around, they fall down and they bang into stuff just as any other kids would. They take, take skin off their knees. Yeah. That's, that's what, I, like most of my childhood, I remember I didn't have any skin on my knees. Yeah. Again, the forest school movement is fascinating. This idea of giving kids more outside, unstructured time in what can be a very dangerous environment, but so that they learn little bit by little bit. If you want to climb the tree, only climb as far as you are confident at present. Yeah, that's it. It's it, and and make the mistake. Like yeah, you know, you fall down, but you you didn't fall. You weren't three hundred meters up a tree. You were yeah. a foot and a half, and yeah, you banged your you banged your knee. And you learned from that. You got. You will get more skilled as a result from that. Yeah. And it's like again, I thinking back to my sports science days where we talked about skill acquisition and things like that. That's that's how you learn is through knowledge of results or knowledge of performance. And yeah, it, it, it it's it's simple stuff that I suppose at the time didn't take didn't take heat enough of, but through I suppose doing it twenty years now, you definitely notice it the whole time. I love this pattern. This comparison that we can always make. So I want to ask Scott, like, 
from a, a physio's perspective, is it easier to treat an injury than like atrophy? Like from, is it easier to treat someone who's made a mistake and then they've bunged up a bit of the, you know, their leg muscle or whatever it may be than someone who just hasn't used their muscles at all? Both of them take time. I suppose if you're yeah. looking at someone who's atrophied and they're, they're weak, mm. then it takes time. You're looking at four to six weeks of an, an appropriate load to get the muscle to change. But likewise, if you're trying to teach a skill, it does take time. You will probably get more immediate improvements, but to actually embed that takes a while. And generally with people I'm seeing, you're getting a combination of both. You're getting people that are, are underprepared to do what they want to do and probably don't move well enough whilst they're doing it. Yeah, the big thing I remember as a sports injury masseuse on Monday morning at the chiropractic clinic would be the people who decided to shovel dirt or gravel and had used the big shovel. Of course. And the big shovel could hold quite a few kilos of gravel. And by some point Sunday, they're now shaped like a pretzel. <laughs> Our job on Monday is to unpretzel them and go, please buy a smaller shovel. <laughs> Or get stronger, yeah. Or, yeah. or or shovel more dirt more regularly. Yes, yeah. I suppose it's one thing that's really stood out with COVID is I've got two very distinct groups of patients, and and one group is the people who've done nothing, and the life now that we're living with COVID, people are starting to get back to the stuff they were doing yeah. and are breaking left, right, and center. Or you've got the people that during lockdown were doing everything. Yeah, and. I haven't run since I was 12 and then I ran 300 Ks last week. Like, well, that was dumb. <laughs> but it was that whole, I needed to do it because I had to get out of the house and I was allowed whatever amount of time within whatever distances to, to run. And I just went out and did it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, there's, there's two real distinct groups that are coming in, which is, is interesting. Yeah. And, and sort of that was going to be my question. What's COVID been like there? Like here we have been so lucky, particularly here in Adelaide, you know, Melbourne's had the worst of it. Sydney's now really getting its difficult dose. But Fortress Australia simply putting up all the drawbridges you know, has made life uncomfortable for Australians, but not crazy dangerous. What's the Irish experience been like? Well, unfortunately, we haven't got a drawbridge to pull up. So we're an island, but it's there's there's two bits to it. And the guys in the north were playing by a different bunch of rules and they weren't going to shut the borders due to a bunch of historical reasons. I suppose to give you some context, we had 1,500 cases yesterday. It's about 200 people in hospital. And that's like, I think the lowest we got down to was 400 a day. And this is a population of 6 million people. So you're looking at sort of yeah. greater Sydney. And like the positive thing we've got is about 75% of the population are vaccinated. So what vaccine did you guys buy? Did you get a bit of everything or have you all been jabbed with Pfizer? Or how did you know, how did the Irish government solve the problem there? We went with the grab bag, we'll take whatever we can get approach. So I was vaccinated relatively early, so I got AstraZeneca, didn't get a stroke. But yeah, they're, they're firing out everything pretty much that they can get their hands on at the moment. And it's one of the things that the Irish government, I think, has done very, very well is that they have gone very, very hard on the vaccine side of things, which like looking at Australia and talking to my friends and family, it was, oh, we've got no cases. It's like, yeah, but what sort of rates are you vaccinating at? It's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I've, my sisters are frontline workers and they were done and their husbands and families and my parents were done, but it's, it's nowhere near the rates that we've got here. Yeah. Well, the number today was that 20% of eligible, you know, it was 20% of people over 18 um, have now had both jabs. Yeah. We're yeah, registering 12 to 15 year olds. Yeah. 
So we're we're ahead of the game, um, which is fantastic. I think a lot of it goes down to the health system in Ireland is, as it is anywhere, is massively under the pump. But like our local hospital covers a massive catchment area and it's not uncommon for there to be 50 or 60 people on trolleys waiting to be admitted. Wow. That's pre-COVID. So one of the things the government did that was positive was threw a bunch of money into health. So they built new wards. They they threw up a, a Nightingale Hospital in the university I work in, which I was fortunate enough to actually work in. Um, and we took some of the overflow from the hospital there. It was that whole, we'll do it now and we'll worry about paying for it later on, which was yeah. exceptionally good for a government in this day and age where it tends to be everything's about how much things cost. Um, but it was that, I suppose the images we saw from Italy terrified people yeah. and with the health system, the way it is here, that's under the pump. Normally people were worried that there was going to be bodies in the streets. I think in terms of having you know the opportunity to work in a hospital where there's the overflow because of COVID, like really what's been surprising here in Australia is how little of the literature on long COVID from the rest of the world is getting any press coverage here. And, you know, there's plenty of data if you start digging about how many people six months later are suffering from major levels of physical fatigue. Um, you know, in a country where, you know, there have been more cases consistently, uh, is that something that you're going to kind of see the flow-on effect as a physio of people where the recovery from long COVID is so slow, the fatigue goes on so long that they're losing large amounts of physical capacity? I'm actually... One of the few physios that are actually treating people for long COVID at the moment. And to give you an example, I've got a patient who got COVID 15 months ago and she can go for a walk today, walk three kilometers, get up tomorrow, no problems. Or she can go for a walk today, walk three kilometers and stay in bed for three weeks. So it's really um, very much like chronic fatigue syndrome where there's good days and there's days where just the baseball bat comes down and that's that. Yep. It's it's terrifying and it's it's not getting the publicity that, it should do. Uh, yeah. I was on a, I was listening in a webinar two weeks ago now where they're saying they looked from the UK at 70,000 patients that have been hospitalized for COVID. So a slightly different population in that these guys were hospitalized, but 25% of 25 to 29 year olds had at least one complication on the back of COVID, Yeah, which is terrifying. And the other bit of data that's really concerning is that first study out, well, there's two now, one out of Germany and one out of UK of doing the IQ testing on people with low COVID and finding you get a drop of one standard deviation. Yep. So a 15-point rub-off of capacity to think and do. It's absolutely terrifying. And it's it's something that I think probably governments are a little bit scared to get too noisy about at the moment just because we're trying to get through the acute phase of things. But it's, yeah. it's, it's really, really scary. Yeah, as you said there, where you've got a border that for historical reasons had to be left open, meaning you had to just deal as a country with you know, a constant mid-level onslaught because if that border's shut, it sends all the wrong signals politically and historically. But as a consequence, it's an awful lot to ask from a society you know, and a government you know, and medical people like you to turn up every day knowing that it's not going to relent until genuinely you know, the end of however long this takes. Yeah, and it, it, I can remember back, just be 12 months now, where like there would be motorhomes with English regs coming down into the Republic whilst we were locking down stuff and trying to stop people traveling and things like that. But it was just, yeah. they were playing by a different set of rules. And um, 
Boris was doing his thing and telling everyone, no, no, you're good, you're good. And, and people aren't dumb. So when they had um, various different immigration restrictions here, like you can fly into Belfast just as easy as you can fly into Dublin. Yeah. So it would be all of a sudden the flights to Belfast were getting filled up and the flights to Dublin were were, were being emptied. So people aren't stupid. People no. work their way around a system very, very quickly. Yeah, it's like here you know, today, uh, it's been reported that a guy from Sydney and his two kids you know, decided to go have a holiday in rural New South Wales and over eight days went to as many places as possible and didn't do a single QR code. <laughs> it takes so much hassle to scan your phone up by a code, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, again, my thing is I just leave business cards everywhere I go and say, if you see me, write me in the book. It's easy to yeah. find the stupid code. <laughs> but even brilliant. that, I've found a solution. What what is up with that, by the way? Like in a day, I barely get up, like go to work, maybe get a coffee, maybe pick up dinner, like possibly go three places. What how what is up with the fact that people that spread this communally just go to like eight different like they get three different sausage rolls from three different bakeries, um, go visit like their aunt at whatever workplace, like just do twenty thousand things in a day, and don't check in. Yeah, and go cool. to the biggest shopping center they can find and a movie and yep. catch some form of public transport. Yep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's called it's called if you haven't discovered physical activity in a meaningful way, you've normally discovered distraction in a meaningful way. Mm. Like people who go to the gym or like me do yoga or do something else or go for a run, you go, well, I burn off a heap of energy. Now I can sit still. Whereas the people who don't burn off energy have to find new and endlessly growing forms of distraction. And the ultimate form of distraction is to just graze all day in terms of crap calories and poor entertainment. Yep. Okay. Interesting. Well, that would be my argument for it. <laughs> Probably not real kind an argument to the people who are doing it, but that's fine. They're the super spreaders. <laughs> we don't have to be kind to them. No, no, because they're not making our life much easier. <laughs> Far from it. So you're in Ireland. You take that first job. You love bicycle racing and watching it. How did the path begin to working in the high performance area, you know, with elite athletes once again, by accident or by the time you were settled in Ireland, you had a bit clearer an idea of what you wanted to do. I don't think I've ever had a clear idea of what I wanted to do. Um, the, the high performance side of things started with me putting my CV into a private practitioner's uh, clinic. And he said, do you want to go to Russia next week with the Irish junior boxing team? And you're like, yes. Sure, why not? Volga grad in February, why not? Let's give it a crack. Let's see what minus 20 is like. And you're out, you made it out alive, so obviously you had appropriate clothing or just never went outside? Uh, went outside but moved very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I think the worst I've experienced is minus nine. I can't imagine what the extra 11 degrees does. It's nuts. <laughs> and going to the, the the gigantic statue, the the... Battle of Stalingrad Memorial, it's there, and there's two soldiers with the eternal flame, and they're standing on wooden boxes to stop their feet freezing. It's wow. amazing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, a bit different to sort of the the sort of troops in the center of Greece stomping around that square <laughs> in hot weather in their kilts. Yep. Like, Slightly different. Yeah. I think I know which one I'd rather do. I think I'd rather stomp pointlessly than stand on a box. Stamping in rain in hobnail boots. Yeah. Mm. So, <laughs> boxing. Yeah, there was a start and what just thought, well, that was fun. I got to go somewhere 
and kept putting your hand up for the next get to go somewhere trip? Kind yeah. So I went from there. I started to get involved with swimming at the university. There's a high performance center there. So yeah. it was it was it was very much like the the opportunities for sports physio in Ireland, even now, but definitely then were sort of if you're willing to have a go and you had half an idea as to what you were talking about. And the fact that I was Australian, like having an Australian accent is an immediate sporting legitimacy thing. Ah. You know, you know everything because you're Australian. Yep. You um, must be able to play cricket and tennis. Yeah. And some yeah. form of football. Yep. hundred percent. Like I, to give you an example, when I was working in the hospital, they do ultraviolet therapy here for people with psoriasis. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, medical sunbed in the room and the girl who used it was going away on holiday so scott got put forward because sure you have sunshine in australia so you'll know how to use it <laughs> we have the sun in australia not uv beds but that 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 was the thing was it's been that little bit different having a funny accent does give you that it gives you the opportunity to actually either prove that you do know stuff or you don't know stuff and the point is if you keep looking that adaptable and it keeps working even yeah. when you, even when you're not sure, you you're not sure. Look, still looks like well, I you know, against that whole thing of confidence breeding confidence, and confidence says, well, have a go at something harder to build confidence. So you get in the yeah. happy cycle. And I, I was writing a blog post the other day on this that you know I'll release later when the episode with my former you know, white cane teacher comes out of. You know, to start with, you need a little bit of confidence to get a little bit of confidence. But my sort of thought is at a certain point. You've got enough confidence to bumble along, but what you need then is the drive to want to do better. So what you need is the confidence in yourself to make mistakes, to actually then start to really achieving. hundred percent. It is that it's that know your limits that you're not going to do something dangerous or particularly stupid, but have Mm. that, that bit of go that you're willing to make a mistake. So like I went away with the boxes, I knew nothing about boxing, but in the two weeks I had before I went away, you better believe I learned as much as I possibly could about amateur boxing, what my role would be, what I could do, even just the language of boxing. So I was going away with a bunch of 18 year old kids that I'd never met before. And I didn't like, boxers are competitive people. They're going to test you from day one. So mm. unless I had something to give back, I was going to get flicked. So yeah. having that ability to speak their language and give them a bit of grief when required, they're going to test you. If I can give a decent response back, then you're probably going to get kept on. Yeah. Again, it was a very similar thing for me when I started doing work with special, you know, special operations units. I couldn't be more the quintessential outsider. You know, the <laughs> silence the first time I walked into most training centers, you know, within bases, and they kind of have the oh moment when they realize the guy up the front's blind and using a cane. It's like, um, and it takes about 10 minutes to demonstrate you're useful. For the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the ice to start to melt and the gear shift to start to happen. But it's your responsibility to, to you know, organize that gear shift as fast as possible. Yep. If, uh, and there is that, I suppose, it's be the same with special operations guys, is that like everything's a test. Yes, and n- if you don't pass, yeah, if you don't pass the test, then they don't have time for you. Yep. And it, it's with all the sports stuff I've worked with, there is that if you're of no use to someone, they don't have time to be working stuff around for you. Basically, if you if you can get on the bus and keep running, you're laughing. But if not, see you later. I ain't got time for this. Yeah. And it's because they know, I think it's some very deep level, that they get such a short window 
to succeed at what they've chosen. Yep. You know, almost all these sporting things, it's not very different to the elite military world. Really, by 30, most things are starting to hurt. And by 35, you have to have found your exit strategy. Yep. It's they're, they're there for a short time, not a long time. So it's, yep. it is that. And, and you've got to maximize that time you're there. Yep. Like working with the bike riders I'm with now, we've had a couple of guys that have been still riding on the world tour at 40, but they're the rarity and they're very, very special human beings. Yeah. But the the thing with guys now is they're coming in at sometimes 20 years of age and it's yeah. they're in a hurry. They've got to get stuff done. And nearly that they're making their exit strategy earlier now. It's yeah. I'm going to get in, I'm going to go as hard as I can, I'm going to get out because within professional world cycling now it's dangerous guys yeah. are taking far more risks on the road than they used to the level yeah. of respect isn't there that used to be um yeah. and you'll hear that from the older riders but it's it's that i'm getting in i'm getting it done and i'm getting out my big question with that because from one of the things of you know working as a masseuse and always having friends in the arts is you know i worked with a fair few ballerinas over the years i was working and got to know quite a few and australian ballerinas tend to get or ballet dancers, it was mainly women I knew, but we'll say ballet dancers to include everyone, tend to get big, dangerous to their body roles much earlier than they would in Europe or the US. Consequently, Australian dancers break a lot more often and a lot earlier because they're under more pressure when they're not yet got the absolute you know, pinnacle of technique and physical control. Are you seeing a similar thing in the cyclists that they're pushing so hard so early it's almost before they can get all their duckies in a row to really succeed fortunately with the team that i work with they're very very mindful of the young guys so young riders are only given certain number of race days a year um in other teams you'll see guys that'll be amazing and come out and have an an amazing breakthrough year and then disappear and their engine's broken yeah um like a parallel to the dancers that like i do a lot of work with irish dancers here and Irish dancing is the river dancey type of stuff that you'll have all seen, but it's, it's actually a competitive sport here and it is a sport. Um, but it's a very, very young cohort. So like I've had nine year old kids come in with stress fractures. Wow. Yeah. Like proper scary stuff. Um, you'll have 12 year old kids dancing 20 hours a week. Yeah. Wow. And this is hardcore banging your feet on the ground thousands of times a day. Yeah. Um, and, there's very, very few dancers into their 20s that you'll see. You see some guys that go off and be professionals, but the guys that are competing, very, very few, sort of 14, 15, beyond that, life gets in the way to start with, but there's a big pile of broken kids as yeah. a result of, of doing what they're doing. I think it was Anders Ericsson, you know, the guy that wrote Peak. And, you know, yeah. really, he's the guy that actually came up with the 10,000-hour rule, not Gladwell. Gladwell, as usual, misrepresented better research. And that is, you know, that everyone capable has 10,000 hours, but it's what you have above the 10,000 hours that makes the difference. But another thing he very much pointed out in all that research is what happens with a lot of those people with the 10,000 hours is the faster they do the 10,000 hours, the faster they hit their peak. And they impress because they've hit their peak very early, but their peak will probably be where, you know, the vast majority of people stop. So when a yeah. dancer at 15 is astounding or a cyclist at 19 is astounding or a ballerina at 22 is astounding, it can be two things. Either you know they've just zoomed along too fast 
and maybe they could go further, but more often than not, they're zoomed very fast to where they're going to hit the wall where the, you know, the returns become smaller and smaller and smaller. They're either physically broken or mentally broken. It's yeah. once you've reached the pinnacle psychologically, there is that point of where do I go from here? Yeah. And it's um, an interesting thing that happened in special operations forces you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan because the amount of counterterrorism work just went through the roof. Teams went from doing a job a week to three jobs a night at the worst in 2007, 2008. So suddenly tours had gone from eight months to 60 days because the amount of action. But the realisation was had by very senior commanders and the clearest with has been Stan Crystal, who's made the point very, you know, very simple. At a certain point, you can't run faster, you can't jump higher and you can't shoot straighter. So now you need to outthink them. Yep. Well, that seems to be the big shift in special operations now to going, okay, let's back down a hint on the physical to not break people and let's up the mental training so they use their physicality even better. Is a similar thing happening in the elite sport that you see? Yeah, I, I think where there's been so much emphasis on physical preparation of athletes and the, I suppose the thing to look back at, like we've just finished with the Olympics and to me, the 100 meter final, if anything, the eight people that are racing physically are pretty much the same. Mm. And it's, you look at fatigue, you look at pain, they're outputs of your brain based on particular inputs. They're warning signs. Mm. So fatigue is a warning sign. People don't drop dead at the end of a race. You don't run out of energy and stop. Mm. It's your brain going, some of our brain, our body chemistry is not sitting in within the nice little happy zone. And it's the guy who's able to push through that and ignore the dashboard lit up like a Christmas tree and mm. risk being hurt that gets there in front. And yeah. I suppose the classic way of looking at it is you watch any race, first three across the line, finish with the hands over the head and do a victory lap. The person who comes fourth is lying on the, on the track, thrown up on themselves. Yeah. And they might be a hundredth of a second behind the person that finished third. Mm. And you can't tell me that physiologically they're that much different. It's just that their brain is able to drive them so much harder or that little bit harder, hundredths yep. of a second harder. And I think, that's what at elite sport the 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 physical physical side of things is taken as a as a given. It's the the psychological and the mental stuff that is being pushed harder now. I think neuroscience is getting a lot more into to to sport. We used to just talk about psychology and talking to people and things like that, but we're actually looking mm. at at other means of doing things. Um, yeah, if you look at a book like Daniel Coyle's book, The Talent Code where he goes and look at all the people that had worked out ways to tweak the neuroscience even before they would have known how to call it neuroscience. Yeah. You know, so and a Russian tennis club going since the 1960s that's produced multiple world number ones. Well, long before anyone would have gone, how do you train a brain? Well, the coaches there had said, well, you train a brain by doing everything very slowly, but perfectly. And then you yeah. let them speed it up, but it has to stay perfect. So the body gets trained very slowly, but the brain gets you know, trained ideally for that task. Yeah. And eventually we let you hit a ball. Yeah. But the, I suppose at an elite level within sport, that whole, like we put so much, we used to put so much into the physical preparation and, and there's almost that robotic aspect to things in it. If you can tolerate this amount of load, you'll yeah. be a legend and you'll be a champion. And the thing is now that the human body is so much more tolerant. Like I can even remember now, like the, the levels of training that rowers are doing now versus what they're doing, when, what they were doing when I was training is, and this is only in 10 years, is huge difference. There's nearly double the volume they'll do in a week. Wow. And they're tolerating it. Um, yeah. Again, there's a bunch of broken kids on the back of it, but elite sport is a nasty place. Um, yeah. 
and that's something that people don't really understand. They all think it's sunshine, rainbows, and gold medals. But elite sport is it can be really, really nasty. Um, you're asking people to do things that you wouldn't ask your mates to do. Um, yeah, the classic example in Australia is okay, go find an Olympic swimmer who got a gold medal 10 years later whose life isn't a mess. <laughs> yep. And it is that fly, fly high, fly early. And then, yeah. and I suppose that is something else that's coming into sport is we're actually giving a damn about what happens to people after their careers, having seen some of the train wrecks that, that have happened. Yeah. Because and- you, you're taking these kids that are very, very good at a thing, expecting them to be these upstanding, amazing human beings and be role models for everyone. And then we're going to cut your support services and everything else once you've finished doing the thing you've been doing for the last 15 years and expect you to continue to be a rock star. Mind you also, their tolerance for being bored is extremely high because they spend most of their time doing the exact same thing. And all of a sudden, they're introduced to a world where they don't have to make the same kinds of commitments or concessions. And then a whole world of interesting thing like interesting things like drugs come along. And uh, it's like almost overwhelming, I imagine. Done. <laughs> Like, uh, I suppose you like in an athlete's life, so much of their life is filled up with, with what they do. Mm, so much yeah. of their, who they are is what they do. Mm, and mm. all of a sudden you're not that thing anymore. Mm. There's a very big hole to fill. Yeah, the biggest thing is not knowing who to be. And, exactly. and that's again, another common thing between elite athletes and elite soldiers is life has been aimed at being good at one thing for so long. And it has defined your early you know, adulthood and there is no transition path until you decide to create one. Exactly. And yeah. especially when you're like, if you're good at something, I think it's either, and it would probably be in the military. Like if you're in special forces, you're one of the cool kids. Yeah. And once that comes to an end, then you've got to be you. And sometimes so much of you has been taken up by some of what you were mm. that there's, you scratch the surface. There's not much of you left. And that's sort of one of the things where I think this whole thing of the athletes having to come back from Tokyo and go into lockdown in so many places in the world, this is going to be really interesting. People who've been surrounded by people for the two weeks have had everything tailored to a particular outcome, have been on this huge build-up, you know, for a particular day for their performance, now have to sit and be bored for two weeks and be on their own. I can imagine the potential psychological toll of this on people who are so used to overachieving, connecting with others, inspiring others and being inspired by others. You know, two weeks of vegetating is going to be a really strange experience for them, I would imagine. Yeah, I'd, I'd hope the teams would have considered that and actually found ways of keeping them busy and keeping them going that didn't involve going to a bar. Um, yeah, well, uh, that's one advantage of locking them in a room. Yeah. <laughs> But it, it it's I would imagine that there'll be smoke coming off a lot of phones. Yeah. With the amount of social media madness <laughs> and all that sort of stuff that'll be going on. Um but yeah, I it's it's quite interesting here in that the athletes haven't had to go into lockdown. They've gone into to home lockdown, which is people are doing that in different ways. Um But yeah, i I would particularly looking at someone like the Australian team where they're going back, I think they're getting flown into Darwin. Yeah, the big flight I think landed this morning, and you know that's all into your individual room at whatever that you know just sort of big storage area outside of Darwin is. 
I'm sure they'll have great fun. Um, I was speaking to a mate of mine who's a New Zealand head swimming coach there the other day, and he's been putting up in a, he's been put up in a nice hotel in Christchurch. He's got a balcony, so he's oh, delighted. what he's a difference married. that would! Oh make. yeah, it's a game changer. So he's he's not worried about his athletes because, as he said, they're they're very young and they're quite sensible. Yeah, and they've got phones. That's yeah. that's what's kind of scary is that that's what people are just going to hang on is their ability to access their phone. Yeah, which already is problematic. And now we're saying this is your lifeline in a time of difficultness. Yeah, it's yep. a bit interesting, isn't it? Because well, you wouldn't want to not have it. Precisely. Yeah. You'd hope there's a nice pile of books in their room, though. Yeah, well, we, see, we could provide the reading list as a group. How good would that be? There you go. <laughs> they could at least put us on in the background. Come on, it, mandatory it? listening. By the end of their two weeks, just, they'd be on about the third repeat of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, well, no, you've uh, also, uh, just a quick shout out, they've also got the uh, Potholes and Penguins podcast to listen to. <laughs> Sorry, that is, uh, Scott's friend who's helping him with the uh, audio today uh, has a podcast, David. Derby, go on. Oh yeah, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a rugby podcast, David. Uh, uh, I'm a musician and... Uh, just what you're talking about, you know, uh, catastrophizing your career coming to an end uh, two right. years two years ago. Uh, myself and another one of the band members set up a podcast with another former Irish international rugby player. It's called Potholes and Penguins, and it's uh, a very light-hearted look at the rugby scene in the Northern Hemisphere, mainly in Ireland, but also European rugby, uh, sprinkled with silly songs and funny outlooks. I will go and listen. <laughs> I love it. There's a wonderful podcast from the guy from Operation Red Wing, uh, Lone Survivor, Marcus Luttrell. He started a podcast and it's all ex-seals. Essentially, the guests are all the seals who got dropped on their heads one too many times. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think you, know, you guys should do a joint episode with them <laughs> comparing, comparing the sandbox and rugby. <laughs> and I can always come along and adjudicate. <laughs> You'd be busy. I'd <laughs> oh, be such fun. <laughs> anyway, thanks for explaining that. Um, now Sorry. we can get back to, to normal programming. So, what's happening in Europe now with cycling, Scott? It, is it pretty much that all the races are happening with everyone functioning in something like a bubble, you know, so, to keep the athletes safe or? Is it on again, off again all the time? And will you get to go and, you know, work on races soon? Or is it sort of all on hiatus until next year? Or So I haven't been able to do a race for the last two years. So the first year was due to COVID, but like racing's back, obviously. It's dependent upon what country it's going on in as to whether there's crowds or not. Okay. And it is very hard to police a 200-kilometer stage and say to someone, don't walk outside your house and watch yeah. the bikes go wizard yeah. past. But Sort of the, the grand departs or the big starts and finishes have tended not to be there. There's a lot of testing that goes on. So our head director, Matthew White, I think he racked up his 70th test there in the last couple of weeks. Wow. Um, yeah. So they're tested. And obviously, like he's getting, he lives in Spain. So he's getting tested, leaving Spain. He's getting tested generally wherever he lands. Then he's getting tested multiple times during a race. We've had riders that have had COVID. We've had riders that have had COVID a couple of times. So it, it is still there. It's, it's very much the attitude. I suppose you look at Australia where it's all contained and, and 
smash and kill and whatever you're going to do to COVID. But here it's very much living with COVID. Um, the attitude is it's the toothpaste is out of the tube. Yeah. Which again is for us here so terrifying now because it's only now that Delta variant is here that we're finally going, oh, elimination's <laughs> not going to work. Because if we get elimination, we can visit New Zealand and New Zealand can visit us. And that will be fun for about one year. And I'd like to see my folks again. So, and like looking at the new rules that the government's brought in, whereas if I do come home, I need permission to leave the country again. Yeah. Is, is really scary. Yeah, I just got an invite to go to a conference in Texas in January. And I thought, well, one, how would I get permission from the Australian government to get out? And two, if Lambda variant keeps moving north through Latin America, my guess is about Christmas, it'll hit Texas. So I'd be there right in the middle of a Lambda outbreak, which is going to make Delta look pleasant and then probably get stuck there and not be able to maybe let back into Australia. Yeah, I'd be dialing into that one, David. Yes. Yeah, Zoom is David's friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's say like Fortress Australia will work, but you won't mm. get to play with many other people. No. And that takes all the fun out. You can't share your toys. No, exactly. So you've done rowing. You're working with cyclists. What's the next sport that's going to be really exciting to and boxing? Go and, well, but that was you know very early in the thing, and that was juniors. Wasn't wasn't the I well I went to a serious game with them. Oh, okay. Wow. All right. So it grew into very serious. Yeah, grew into the second best boxing team in the world. So that was pretty good behind the Cubans. So we went. Wow. Yeah. Ireland has a huge history of boxing. We yes. So okay. it's probably our most most successful Olympic sport. We've just won a gold medal with Kelly Harrington in um, Tokyo, and we come over the bronze as well. Uh, in Beijing, we ended up with a silver and three bronze, I think. Wow. And wow. Yeah. So oh, it, it's the it's most big. successful sport by long way. It's huge. Wait. So being it's amateur boxing, does that mean helmets are allowed or only at Olympics? They, uh, the rules have changed dramatically. So when I was working with them, they boxed four two-minute rounds and they had head guards. Oh, and then okay. there was the head of the world body decided that we were going to get rid of head guards because the public couldn't engage with the boxers because they couldn't Whoa. see them. Um, they do very, they, the only thing head guards do is stop you getting cut. They do nothing for concussion. Oh, okay. okay. Oh, that that, was, gonna, that yeah. was gonna be my next question. Now that we have all the data coming out from American football and AFL about traumatic brain injury yeah. from the brain sloshing around and hitting the inside of the skull, um, yeah. is boxing one of those sports where people get out soon enough you know that if they've stayed an amateur their brain keeps working fairly well or is it a sport that even though ireland's been very successful there's more and more social pressure building that maybe it's not the best use use of amazing youth i think from an amateur perspective anyone that boxes is getting concussive blows regardless yeah. you can't you can't get punched, can't punched in the head and not get concussed um, but at an amateur level anyway, the sport is set up to protect the boxer so that if you take a good shot to the head, you get a standing eight count. So that's you're taken away from that potential second immediate hit that knocks you out. And right. the, it's very much that the, the referee is there to protect the boxer. Okay. Um, within the amateur sport as well, so there's the, the aim isn't to knock the guy out. It's more to score points. Right. So that there is any, I suppose, some degree of protection in there. And amateurs generally finish up 
relatively early. We talked sort of mid twenties. They're done. Okay. Um, it's a professional game. That's that's a different. It's a different gravy altogether. There, you got guys that your aim is to go and knock someone out. They spar a bunch more than they do at the amateurs. Will spar, but a lot more of what they'll do is technical and tactical stuff. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a different game. Yeah, because again, this was sort of the thing. It was twenty ten. The data came out from Holland about you know traumatic brain injury in combat, and the Dutch pretty much reached the realization that you shouldn't be in combat for any more than eight months every three years, uh, otherwise your brain is altered forever. Yeah, simply from things going pop near your head, even if you're never physically hit, constantly causing your brain to go splat on the inside against your skull. And and you look at I suppose why special forces are trained is they're designed not to flinch when something goes bang next to them. Yeah. And so you look at like and that's one of the things I suppose with with boxing that they would be looking at is that it's not necessarily the competitive exposure because that's relatively small compared to training exposure. Yeah, a um, lot more hours in the gym. Yeah. Where maybe the rules aren't maintained quite the same way because people get revved up that they're having a good day and the person they're sparring with is also having a great day. So everyone pushes a bit harder. Mm. Yeah. And it's like at the amateur level, we'd always run with a squad type of scenario. So we might have, what if it was 11 weights, then we might have two or three boxes at each weight. So you've got 30 guys, 25 guys running around in a gym. It has to be very, very regimented because you yeah. can't have that many people running around the place bashing each other in the head whereas if it's a professional setup you might have the boxer with two or three sparring partners and they can just flog away and they'll, they'll do that they'll have particularly working for a 12 hour a 12 round bout they might have a boxer with two or three sparring partners and they're, they're interchanging the sparring guys to keep pushing the boxer whereas within the squad they they might be paired up or they're they're doing yep. something separate as they go around so that that exposure to concussive blows is is far less you look at i suppose rugby league would be my sport i played as a kid and you look at the professional level there their guys are playing 26 games a, or 26 rounds a year plus yeah. representative games and everything else uh, I, I was talking to a mate who worked with a gold coast team and they had the guys are all gps up obviously and their yeah. gps the accelerometer tops out at 15g yeah and one of their players in an 80 minute game had 80 15g impacts Whoa. So he was getting instantaneously getting hit with 15 times his body weight. Yeah. Once a minute, every minute of the game. Yeah. So that, Again, we can kind of see why we don't see old American football players coming and talking and why we don't tend to see old rugby players come and talking in the media. Yeah. And it, again, it's, I think what's going to end up happening with contact and combat sports, it's going to be, if you're of a certain level, there's going to be, some sort of form you're going to sign where you're going to say, look, you are taking risks yeah. that you are going to potentially end up with something on the back of this. Cause otherwise like you look at the payout that went on in the NFL, sorry, there was a billion dollars or something like that. Other sport rugby league, it's starting to, to come through. I've no doubt AFL will be the same. Um, anything that's, that has people's brains getting rattled. You look at the military, like yeah. there, there will be some degree of, of compensation that will be needed to be to be brought forward, but also that care of people once they've retired. I think that's yeah. that's nearly more to me is more important than giving people a bunch of money once they're in trouble. Yeah, because they need to know what to do with you know the bunch of money. They need to feel confident that they know what to do for the rest of their life, and that they're yeah. aware of what the risk might be, and they've got management strategies in place. 
Because again, yeah. is, we're not saying they've got no capacity for their brain to evolve left. What we're saying is it needs to be evolving before they finish the activity so they can make best use of that ability to evolve past the potential damage if they possibly can. Yep. And we're not saying that you're going to end up with damage, but there is a potential no. there. And yeah. if you're playing NFL, we're going to pay you absolutely squillions of dollars to do it. But part of that money is going to be set aside to look after you. Yeah. And also we're going to have humans around that are going to help you out with that. I think that's the other big bit is that we're substituting money for actual treating people as human beings. We're social yeah. beings. We need to be supported in that regard. Yeah. And this is why I sort of asked the question before about, you know, physio and occupational therapy, because to my mind, the wonderful thing of putting the two groups together is if they have to start talking about how to put all the skills together to help someone, that conversation between two professionals is also then going to make a bigger conversation with the potential client. You yeah. Know, what works for you? What do you need? What you know, do you feel gets you the best result? Could we try this next week? Are you excited to try that? And suddenly you've created a dialogue where if someone feels engaged, they get so much more out of the experience. Yeah, Within medicine now, we talk about patient-centered care. Yeah. And up until fairly recently, that was very much just being paid lip service. Oh, yeah, the patient's in the middle, but we just do stuff to them. Yeah. Whereas now we're finding it's actually easier if you do include the patient in stuff because like within physiotherapy, the biggest issue within physio is patient compliance. Getting patient to do their exercises yeah. is a nightmare. And it shouldn't be. That's a failing on our part rather than on the patient's part. I can sit there and give you a six-hour a day training program if you want, but you're not going to do it. Mm. unless you are wired that way but if i go would you do two exercises for me today yeah i could probably squeeze that in how i know one of the questions i'll ask patients how much time can i get from you a day mm. to help with your problem and they might go 30 minutes three times a week i go cool this is what we can do with that mm. and at least give them that start and and show them that here if we do your 30 minutes twice a week whatever it is you get some change that's mm. what gets their buy-in which then gets them to do whatever it is that they actually need to do further down the track but unless we start engaging with people and, and taking on board what they need and what they like, we're, we're, we're fighting the tide. Yeah. It's always one of those things that I learned with students at university, never ask them to do more work. It's not going to happen. They're doing, you know, a full study load. They're working part time and they're trying to have a life. So the only question you can legitimately ask is, could I get you to do a little bit of work earlier to prime your subconscious <laughs> to chug along at it when you're doing all the other fun things? Yeah. Now, the ones it's, who learned to start a bit earlier, even if only for an hour a week earlier, did that hour to prime their brain. Just the benefits for them feeling they'd taken that little bit more control always got a better outcome. Yeah. Uni is way more fun if it's not a constant all-nighter. Mm. Yeah. Unless you're a law student and it's part of the badge of honor of joining the tribe <laughs> yeah. is you no sleep for two months a year for four years. Or med, or med school, I'm sure. Med yeah. School. It's like I another one of the many strings to my bow is I lecture at university and like amazing physio yeah I, I I've got to get a real job eventually. I said that Physi and then COVID happened and now I'm trying to do just that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm considering becoming a grown up. Ah, uh, don't do that. Don't grow up, David. Ever. No. <laughs> but like physio is the highest mark in our university, and so we get a bunch of kids. The, the leaving cert here is out of six hundred points. Most of the class will have 600 points walking in the door. Whoa. Wow. And they're shocked when they're not asked, what did you get in your leaving cert? It's like, you're back to zero now. It's, yeah. That got you in the door. Yeah, and nothing the more pass, pass. Yeah, it's, that's done. Um, and 
the biggest issue is actually getting them to think. So I, I was teaching anatomy, so easy to get them to rote learn stuff. But if you go, what do you think about this? You'll get the response of, what do you think about it? It's like, I, I know what I think. I want you to take this information and mix it around a bit and give me an opinion on it. Yeah. And it's terrifying. And it's COVID has probably highlighted that further because you're looking at a blank screen half the time because the students are sitting there with their cameras off and you wouldn't know if they're there a lot of the yeah. time. It's very interesting at the moment, you know, doing a master's in strategic communication and sitting in class as a master's student and going, the majority of the people sitting around me are experts at assessing and producing rubrics. Look at rubric, yep. create what rubric described. Yep. It's, uh, it's play the game of education. Yeah. And I remember one of the things, you know, when Tim studied with me, there was no rubric. There never was for any of my subjects. And there was always some kid who would have a total meltdown in every subject <laughs> about the no rubric. Yeah. And I always hoped that that would happen before census day so that they could just go away and not have to be miserable all semester. How do I win this module? That's mad. That's actually yeah. really, really cool. But we're like, it's, it is one of the things in like looking at a leaving cert, it's, it's formulaic. It's the kids yep. that can remember stuff and regurgitate it when required. Yeah. Um, something that's come out quite recently this year. And I think last year as well, but definitely this year with the leaving cert was the kids did formative assessments throughout the year because they weren't sure whether their final exams were going to happen or not. Yep. And they were given the option to sit their exam at the end of the year. So you could sit there and work feverishly the whole year and, and do really, really well and decide not to do your exam at the end of the year. And what's happening with the kids is they're getting the higher of the two marks. So if someone does really, really well formatively yep. and bins their final exam, well, they get the formative mark. Whereas if they, they – and there are kids that are obviously very competitive that want to – I want to test myself and do the exam and they do really well in the exam, well, then they, they're going to get that result. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out the back of it in that regard. Yeah, you would hope that that combination means there's a bit more diversity in how they learn and how well they know how to game the system. Yeah, yeah it's, it's helpful to be put into a class where every, every one of your peers knows exactly the same kinds of things that you do. Well, what a horrible level of conformity potentially. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it, it does make like having students come in with six, all of them with 600 points. Like I've, I've asked kids, why do you do physio? And, and I have had the answer given to me, well, I got 600 points. I wanted some reward for it. Yeah. Wow. Like, this is a career, dude. <laughs> yeah. And you actually need to like and care about people. We don't yeah. have to like them, but you do need to care about them. There is a yeah. distinction. I, I'm good at physics and maths. Do you like people? Not really. Well, this probably isn't the job for you. Yeah. How many years is physio there? Like, was it four years for them to qualify or? It's at a bachelor's degree is a four year course. We actually run a two year advanced masters as well. Okay. So what's the point where the ones who go, I might've got 600, but this isn't for me actually walk away or they're so committed that they got 600 and they now have to do well at uni that they don't walk away. I think I've had, I've had one student who was an absolute genius of a girl. She was killing it in first year and I think got to week seven and she came up to me and said, thanks Scott. I'll see you later. And I'm like, all right, see you on Monday. And she's like, no, no, I'm leaving. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah, this isn't for me. She's like, I, I want to be an engineer. Yeah. yeah. And there's been kids that have drift, drifted off, but like she had the insight to go, this is not what I thought it would be. Um, yeah took a year out, went off and did engineering and is loving engineering because she gets to measure things and all that sort of stuff. Yep. But the vast majority of them, now, again, most of them 
warm to the job, but yeah. a lot of them will just do that whole mum and dad are paying for me to go to college. So I'll get through and get it done. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It, again, it sounds like at your uni physio looks a lot like law looks in Adelaide where it's, yeah. well, you don't know what to do. You're not really a math science person. So you do law. So you get the highest marks you can for law and then realize that three groups of people just did that in three universities in the same city. So you've got 300 lawyers finishing at the end of every year for about 20 jobs. Yeah. We, so we produce, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we produce a lot of physios. Yeah, but you know, again, Australia claims to be a sporting nation. It sounds like what, from what you're describing, yeah. um, you know, Ireland for a little place, does a pretty good job of producing some people who do their athletic activity pretty well. We we punch above our weight pretty good, yeah. Yeah, is this historically because, you know, quite simply, you know, when there isn't a lot of money, go play sport, go outside. It was just culturally, it was the easiest thing to get young people to do. You know, yeah, go I, kick I, a ball. Yeah. Like, it's, I, I suppose the big thing within Ireland is the, the Gaelic sports, so hurling and Gaelic football. And every village in the country has a hurling team or a football team or both. And like the best athletes in the country are running around on hurling pitches and football pitches at the expense of a lot of other sports within the country. But like the, there's stuff that goes on here that you'll see nowhere else. So if you grow up, so I'm sitting in Clare at the moment. And if I grew up here, I'd play hurling and football here. Yep. And if I then moved to Dublin, I would still play hurling and football in my home village team. So I would, I may drive two hours twice a week to go training to do it because it's so central. So it's that thing. Sport is still culturally bound to location and community. Hundred percent. Like I I regularly suggest to 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 people, like why don't you go and play with the people you're living with and and the look of what are you talking about? Like why don't you go and sell your firstborn child? So like it's it is that you just don't do it. And on the odd occasion that someone does do it, you've actually got to get permission from your former club to actually go and transfer to, an, and you could be the other end of the country. You could be four hours drive away and yep. your home club could go, no, they we need still you. either expect you to drive back or not play. Or not play. Yep. Like wow. in the good old days, people, guys were getting flown back from London regularly for matches and for trainings and things like that. It's, oh, it, you will not get more passionate people than GAA people. It's wow. amazing. I, I find that more genuine than the uh, AFL model, which is grow up and learn to play AFL in Adelaide and then go and play for the Sydney Swans or whoever the hell you, you may want to, I find. Yeah, <laughs> I like the community connection. Yeah. yeah, the idea that, but again, that it, it's such a powerful thing. But again, this is the thing. You're not going to become mega rich out of either of those sports, no. but you are going to be wedded to your community. Well, and yeah you're probably going to remember how to function with people who are not elite athletes and do better after your sporting career because you were always part of a community. hundred percent. Um, and, and it is that like, there is that dream of winning an all Island final with your, with your club. And yep. it's that every Irish kid holds that is that to have an all Island medal is the ultimate. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's an amateur sport. So everyone's got jobs and does everything else. And, and at an elite level, the, the inter-county guys are training just as hard as most professional sports and holding down a job at the same time. Um, or in a lot of respects with a lot of counties, it's the age profile of, of players has gotten younger. So it's mostly college students that can actually afford the time to do yeah. it now. 
like by the time you're 22, in a sense, you need to have moved on that you become one of the older statesmen in the sort of B grade team. Yeah. You go yeah, back, you go back and play in your sun. village. Yeah. Yep. And then you go back and play. And that, that's something that's also really cool is that they will go back and play in their, their village team. And then, so the legend comes back and, and fosters the, the future of things, but it's, it is truly amazing to see. And the passion within the sport is, is unbelievable. So was it Saturday morning is the big morning for these two sports? So pretty much every village Saturday morning looks the same as every other village. Yeah, pretty much. Um, wow. And it's, it's, there's that like everyone hates everyone else as well. So we're playing against this group and we've always hated them and they've always hated us. And I was down the village and heard Mickey Joe saying this and yeah, it's, but it's cool. And it, there's a whole bunch of craziness and madness that goes along with it. And the, every club has a sports scientist that does an amazing training program until you get beaten. And then it's just like, right, we're going to run until Jonah throws up four times. <laughs> the, the science goes out the window if you get beaten sort of thing. So with all your experience with all these international level teams, yeah, do you sort of sit in a pub occasionally and have a beer and someone comes up and goes, Psst, our village needs you? Like do you I, get offers you can't refuse? I've I've worked with I worked with an intercounty ladies football team a couple of years ago and that was an absolute eye opener. Um, I'm currently working with my local club, who my son, my seven year old son, runs around with a little helmet and a wooden axe playing <laughs> with. Um, oh, it's crazy stuff. Super cool, but absolutely crazy. But uh, yeah, I do a little bit of work with them. Um, they're as appreciative as you could possibly imagine as well because they don't get a lot of the time particularly like local clubs don't get sort of as much help out as they they could do sometimes yeah um so yeah it's cool though so what is hurling okay i'm going to use blindness to justify my ignorance here <laughs> now you've said there's a little axe now i like the idea is this a residual viking thing or what think think of hockey mm. but a aerial Aerial hockey. Yeah, that's Ooh. probably the easiest way of doing it. That's a lot across? of missing teeth. Oh, well, in recent years, maybe the last 10 years, they've mandated that you have to wear a helmet with a grill on the front. It yep. used to be that you didn't. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, I think it's the fastest field sport in the world. Really? Um, wow. Yeah, oh, it's, it's mad stuff. It's like incredibly skillful stuff. Sorry, what's the difference between hurling and lacrosse? Like, is there is that a so, comparison to make? Bigger pitch. So, if you okay. imagine your so Croke Park is about the size of the MCG. Um, wow. Okay. Yep. It's a yeah, eighty thousand seat stadium. It's a big place. Um, the goals are the combination of a rugby goal and a soccer goal. Yep. So you get one point if you hit it over the bar, and you get three points if you score a goal. And there's a goalie there who is the single craziest person on earth. Yeah, I can believe that. So a slitter, which is the ball, would be, if you think of the hardness of a cricket ball with the, the ridge of a tennis ball running around it. Okay, yep. Um, <laughs> like essentially a rock traveling at <laughs> hundreds of kilometers an hour, getting hit by guys carrying, like it's essentially, war the best clubs. way to describe it is a wooden axe. Yeah, a war club. Made from, <laughs> made from ash wood. Um, and yeah, it's, it's super cool. That is and and this, your seven-year-old is in his first year. Like, when are they allowed to helmet up and pick up the under, mini axe? Under sixes, they start swinging away. Oh. And it is a sport where you need to pick up as a six-year-old because if you're any older, you'd go, nah, that's wrong. Wow. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's. I'm just trying to think of a better way to describe it for David. It's AFL with helmets and axes. Yeah, it, it sounds enormously appealing, but I can see your logic that if you don't start at six, you never would because you would just do the calculation at any age and go, I am so many steps behind the level yeah. of survival, let alone achievement, run now. <laughs> and it, it's it's one of those things where like, if a guy's swinging a hurley at you, the safest place to be is as close as you possibly can be to him. Yep. But that goes against every survival instinct that anyone ever has. Unless yeah, you've got to get inside the secure. weapon. Yeah. 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 <laughs> On that note, that is just going to stick with me for days now. you got to get close to the guy so he can't whack you with the wooden pretendy axe or you can't <laughs> get hit by the polished stone. Exactly. <laughs> and right, that's look, hurling I- in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> What, you know, I, I, I have to say, I'm not the most sport literate person on the world. And I, I've got to say, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation uh, just from the perspective of sport as an insight to human flourishing and kind of development. Because all along the way, we've had these little tidbits, these little insights about human nature and improving ourselves and, and you know, performing at the elite. And it's been really interesting. I've got to say, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. No worries, Tim. Thank you. Thank you very much, Scott. Uh, we expect your son to come on when he wins his first county trophy and <laughs> to tell us that. all about how it is he's learnt to normalise this. <laughs> 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 That's the best neuroscience project ever for an honours or master's level psych person. How you normalise hurling as a part of normal life. <laughs> Even anthropology, possibly. Yeah, yeah, but they're going to want to be as one with the ball. You know, that's going to end badly. Oh, no. You get Louis throw out in the middle of the pitch. Um, <laughs> He'd love it. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Um, thank you both. And thank you, audience. Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favorite episodes or leave us a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights or send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out.